Sound Design Live. This is Sound Design Live. I'm talking with Cliff Carruthers. He has created soundscapes and music for over 100 Bay Area productions, according to his bio. <laughs> a artistic associate at Cutting Ball Theater, a company member of Crowded Fire. And now at ACT, you are teaching or you're a resident uh, designer? Sound, sound design associate. Many jobs all at the same time. Yes, yeah. Well, that's what you have to do to, to survive, you know. Well, got to cobble it together. I was going to ask you this later, but I guess I'll go ahead and ask it now. So, um, another San Francisco based designer recently told me that you can't make a living as a designer. So, my question is is that true? And if so, how are you alive right now? Uh, <laughs> well, um, you have to define make a living, first of all. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I've been able to do it for, you know, um, the past six, seven years. Um, I mean, I've been here about 10 years, but, you know, it's, it's pretty tough to do it purely freelance, you know. Uh, I mean, I do it, but I work a lot, you know. I, I mean, I kind of thrive on that, so that works for me, but, you know, it's, uh, it's not for everyone. Um, but, you know, most people I know who are, you know, making a living in theater, they, they're working a lot, but they've also got, you know, they've got a teaching gig on the side um, or they've got a part-time gig with a theater doing something outside their field or something, you know, um, they're, they're finding some way of stabilizing their income so that they can do, um, you know, all the theater work that they they want to do. So, yeah, it's, it's really hard, you so, know. But you've made it work by being full-time some places and then also doing other work outside of that? Also doing other shows on top of that? I ended up getting a, a resident designer gig with TheaterWorks um, back in 2003. And um, I started out designing half their shows a year. And then a couple years later, I went full time and started doing all of them. And that, you know, that got me through some, some very dry years where I was still kind of building up, you know, um, building up clients and, and that kind of thing. Um, but they were also very good about letting me take, you know, as much outside work as, as you know, as I could deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really good arrangement for me. Uh, after a few years of doing that, I've gotten to the point where I can pretty much do this freelance and, and make a living. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm never going to be rich, you know, and I'm never going to be able to afford most of the equipment that I use, you know, that's, that's at the theater. That's just, you know, that's the way it is. Um, well, do you want to, since you're already talking about this, do you want to go a little bit backwards in time and talk about how you got into working in music? Um, because I should mention that you're not only a sound designer, but you also, uh, make music and you're mm-hmm. part of the um, San Francisco Tape Music Festival. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. San Francisco Tape Music Festival. Um, so yeah, talk about your path a little bit into getting into the arts. Well, you know, a uh, pretty circuitous path. You know, I don't think, you know, nobody wakes up, nobody, no little kid says, I want to grow up and be a sound designer. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's anyone thinking that. But, um, 
you know, I, I'd always had a really strong interest in music growing up. Uh, and I, you know, I took piano lessons, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I did get a music degree uh, coming out of undergrad. But, you know, I was, I was kind of, I was into more experimental music and, and um, I was doing things with uh, prepared piano and sort of uh, uh, exploring 20th century music, that kind of thing. I mean, I, you know, developed interest in John Cage, you know, which kind of opened up my ears in general. And, and um, I think you could probably blame him for getting interested in sound design in general. Um, but at that point when you were studying music, what did you want to do? Oh, God, I was, yeah, not music. Not, I mean, I, <laughs> I, you know, I was, I was spending all my time playing music and listening to records and wondering what am I going to do with, with myself when I'm okay. out of school. Were you performing at that time then? No, not really. Uh, um, you know, I've never done a ton of performing myself. I've done some, but... So you're doing a lot of recording, recording, um, you know, private study, learning, teaching myself how to improvise and things like that. So yeah, doing but, pretty geeky stuff from the very beginning. Pretty, pretty geeky. Yeah, I had no interest in theater at the time. You know, I'd never even never walked into a theater as a technician during undergrad. Um, you know, and after that, I spent five years or so, um, kind of jumping around and I, you know, I lived in New York for a couple of years. I lived in Chicago for a couple of years and, uh, sort of, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself, but I, you know, wasn't ready to go back to grad school. A big change for me was when I bought my first computer back. This is back probably 95. I bought right. a, a, an Insonic sampling keyboard. Mm hmm and uh and a let's see a quadra 840 av macintosh wow where'd you get that idea well for a long time i was you know when i was an undergrad i was kind of vehemently against amplified music in general it's really weird now because that's kind of all i do is mm -hmm. amplification but um at some point i kind of flipped flipped that around and got very interested in electronic music and um, and sampling particularly. I thought that was going to be an interesting uh, thing to explore. You know, this is the mid-90s, you know, so it was very primitive, um, you know, comparatively. And then when I, you know, I got the computer and I started playing around with sound software and that, that I just took to that like a, you know, fish to water and at that point, I quit my day job, went back to grad school, and I was studying electronic music. And um, what school? Uh, UMKC, University of Missouri, Kansas City. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I was studying electronic music, uh, and that happened to be on the same floor as the theater sound design program. So I started meeting and kind of interacting with with those guys. And uh, when it came time to actually enroll um, and get into a program, uh, the sound design uh, folks offered me a really generous scholarship. So cool. um, I didn't, had no idea what I was getting into. Honestly, it was uh, so it was, it was kind of I kind of backed into this career 
you know, in a, in a weird way, but you know, the, the person who runs the program there, Tom Mardex, he, he invited me in and, and you know, he, he must, he saw some potential there cause he, he, he got me into the program and immediately threw a design at me in the first semester. And, um, and it was great. I just, it was a, for me personally, you know, it was a, a great, you know, it was a great way to kind of frame the music I was interested in making, and it sort of give you a reason to to keep making music. You know, um, uh, you can find an audience, and 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 uh, and also, you know, just um, just helping t- helping with storytelling the way that you can with sound design and 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 you know, incidental music for for plays is just something that I, it felt very natural from from um from that first design so nice so that you know tumbled out into and then where was your first job outside of school where was your first gig uh after i left school or i don't know i guess were you doing shows already <laughs> my first you know my first paid sound design gig right. that was uh for a for shawnee mission kansas theater in the park wow yeah, that was fun. How did you find out about that? You went all the way to Kansas after um, studying here. Mardix pushed me into that. Okay, it was it was, it was well, it was a, uh, it's a community theater, but it's huge. I mean, they four thousand people come out to this That's in the summer. It's theater. very it, yeah, huge outdoor space. You know, uh, bailing wire and twigs for a sound system and <laughs> and. Um, you know, and they're basically like, here it is, make something, do something with it, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I spent a summer out there with a high school kid was, who was my assistant. And, and um, you know, I, I laugh about that a lot now. It was just a just terrible, terrible Sounds place. like some sort of rite of passage, I don't know. It was, yeah, definitely a rite of passage. Yeah, you have, yes. Until you've mixed a, a, a community theater version of the pajama game, you really haven't done it yeah. <laughs> uh yeah so but the you know the, i learned it you know i laugh about that now but i learned a ton from that summer you know it was just sort of you know that the just kind of jumping into the fire and you know learning about gain structure and you know figuring out relative you know figuring out how to listen and to listen and process what you're listening and and you know um be able to make adjustments with the equipment you know i mean that's that sounds so simple but but it requires a lot of focus and people who are listening and haven't seen or listened to any of your work should know that it's really dynamic and that's for me the most powerful thing about it is for these shows that i saw is that the beginnings would really draw you in and make you feel comfortable and it's all sort of soft and passive in a way and quiet and so you sort of lean in to hear it and then like boom you have something really loud like a thunder crash and then through the throughout the rest of the show i can't really trust you anymore you know like <laughs> yeah. i get drawn yeah. in some more but i'm like wary of the sound design for the rest of the show so well, yeah, I mean, it, dynamics are really Im- important. I mean, you know, I like to say if everything's loud, nothing's loud, you know. And you can make something seem incredibly loud if you've done what you were talking about, like make it so people are leaning in 
um, just before that moment happens, you know. You know, so something can seem deafeningly loud, but if you were to put it in, you know, into a context like, a, I don't know, a club show or something, you know, someplace where you would be expecting loud sound, it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel that, it wouldn't feel that uh, aggressive. How are you generating those sounds? Are you using a synthesizer? Okay, well, uh, the, in, in the Tempest, yeah. there's, there was kind of a repeating theme, uh, musical theme that uh, came back during several of the video sequences um, and during the storm at the top of the show. Uh, I composed up some melodies um, for the um, for the lead actress to learn, and um, Caitlin Lochard. Caitlin Lochard, yeah, she's. Great. I really just wanted to talk about how she's hot, but then I thought we should talk about your sound design instead. <laughs> she's she was great in that play too. She's she has a lovely voice, and it was funny. I'm trying to how did uh, I had to record her singing for one sequence in the play you know I was kind of playing around okay well I want some kind of you know overriding music in quotes musical theme that we can kind of bring back and, and sort of sets a, a modern tone with some drive to it and you know and kind of draws you in and um, so I was kind of mulling how to do that and you know I played around with some sample instruments and you know I was kind of at a loss really as to how to best pull that off and then just you know this is this speaks to how you can just have to keep your ears open I think is I you know I was just kind of playing around with editing and I you know somehow ended up with this like half second long clip of her voice and and it was looping it created this really nice rhythmic texture and I was like oh okay that's interesting I can that's something I can build on so I started uh, working with just that little sample, which I kind of randomly grabbed. It was not, I wasn't like, I wasn't like searching through her, but what is the perfect half second, you know? It was, it was more like, you know, it was more of a happy accident, you know? So I took that half second, second sample and, you know, pitched it around and, and created some chords and, and made little, little uh, offsetting edits to create a rhythmic counterpoint but basically it's a long, very long story made short that that whole piece of music is built on one sample of her voice wow um which it, you know isn't particularly important to someone watching the show but for me it's you know it helps me tie things together uh which is important and i sure and, and even if it's not super obvious you know subconsciously you, you feel you feel how it together yeah exactly you feel it kind of fitting together even if you don't know exactly how why it does there's an effect that you mm-hmm. turn mm-hmm. off and on during these shows and for me it seems like a lot of times you're actually going back and forth between creating these ethereal um soundscapes and music and then and and then you'll use this technique with the voices um, sort of as a transition in between those other elements of soundscapes. So sweet, you're talking about using it as transitional material. I mean, I, you know, I I end up using that that particular effect a lot with with Rob Melrose, the director of that show. He just he just loves it. I bet he probably asks you for it all the time. He let, yeah, he asks for it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's a it's a pretty it's really a pretty simple idea. It's just you know, it's one of those things they will not teach you how to do this because it goes. It, no one will teach you how to do this because it's it kind of goes against what you should be 
probably be doing <laughs> mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, it goes against a lot of rules um, in terms of just feedback and how to make, you know, how to make things sound nice, you know, real, you know, uh, in, in a primitive space like the exit, we're really, you're really just talking about hanging a single mic over the stage and uh, going through a single reverb unit, coming back into a pair of channels and, um, and just rolling off everything that might feed back, you know, it's not about, you know, and so you're basically, you're, you're just going to capture a little bit of uh, diffuse echo when you do that. Um, yeah. I mean, and that's a, that's a trick I've been playing around with for a long time. I went, you know, I, I, it's, a, I think it's a really useful uh, thing for certain situations, but you know, I, I've, I've often ended up using that effect someplace where, you know, I'll, I'll be thinking, well, gosh, it would be great to do some underscoring here, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, I don't know what I would do here exactly. And, and the words are so important, you know. Well, in, in so the you Tempest, up, you, you're helping them switch characters. Yeah, in right? the Tempest, it, it really helped delineate character switches. Which uh, they're doing on stage, in the middle of scenes almost. Oh, yeah. Um, without, Not you, you know, it'll be immediate. Of, yeah, absolutely, in the middle of scenes, yeah. yeah. You know. Well, the funniest part of the night was um, at the end of the show, or maybe it was at intermission, uh, there were two kids sitting behind me who apparently had to come there for class, and I heard them whisper something, one student to another, something like, we have to write about this? And I was like, oh, shit, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, tell me about um, SF Sound and the Tape Music Festival, and how did that start, and how long have you been involved? Uh, well, let's see. I think the, the they did the first concert in the late '90s, might have been '99, something like that. Um, uh, I got involved with them in 2001. Mutual friend Jake Rodriguez is also a really great area uh, sound designer. Uh, he introduced me to to Matt Ingalls, who's the artistic director of SF Sound, and. They were looking for a space to do the tape festival, and and at the time I had an in with the with the uh, artistic director um, at Ashby Stage. It was Transparent Theater back then, but um, uh, so I helped hook them up with a space and and um, got some uh, helped get some better equipment for them too through through um, some theater connections and oh, cool. kind of you know. Uh, I mean, there was already very cool stuff happening. I think of my contribution would be to kind of, was to kind of raise the technical bar a little bit. Yeah, because this year um, you guys had uh, stuff from Meyer Sound. Did you get a sponsorship? We got a few cabinets from Meyer Sound. Yep, um, and uh, the rest of it we got from Paul Drescher Ensemble. Who, um, you know, they're Paul Drescher's a great uh, area composer musician. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he, he supports a lot of new, new music and, and theater in the area too. Um, yeah, so that's been going on for about, uh, you know, over t- I've been involved for 10 years now. It's wow. crazy to say, but if you don't, if you're not familiar with, with the project, I mean, we, uh, we load in a, 
a, a large sound system, you know, between, usually between 16 and 20 speakers, and we'll surround the audience with speakers, put them up on stage, and get, you know, just kind of really fill out uh, the theater in such a way that you can sort of add a mixing board with like one with one fader per speaker. Basically, you can project sound onto the sound system. Uh, and, you know, uh, we talk about it sometimes, like you're playing the space, you know, you're, you're playing the, the, um, uh, you're playing with the acoustics of the, of the actual theater of the, of this, the, of the uh, yeah. This must be space. really fun for you because, you know, all the, all year long, you're going to all these different theaters with who knows what kind of standards for audio and what kind of equipment. And then one time a year you get to work with the best system you yeah. can get you know yeah that, that's it's pretty it's a pretty fun project and it it uh you know i say i'm so busy with theater projects it's it's tough for me to keep up with new music sometimes and i think that kind of helps keep my my education um oh yeah i wanted to ask you about your connection to richmond sound design because i saw that you have a recommendation on your linkedin page and I've had some experience with them. Richmond Sound Design's been around for forever. They've been around for a long time. Um, Charlie Charlie Richmond's he's 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 one of the first credited theater sound designers going back to the '60s. Wow. Anyway, you know, it harkens back to a different era. You know, Q Lab. That's Q Lab's the new kid on the block, and you know, uh, what's so great about QLab to me is that it's very solid with off-the-shelf equipment. Up to about, oh, I don't know, 2003, 2004, you know, if you were a professional theater, you had some kind of proprietary system probably for playback. Like for, for years at TheaterWorks, we had the audio box AB1616, which was a, a proprietary box that played 16 channels of audio, and also you could process eight, uh, eight. So basically, a matrix box with sound playback built in. Made by Richmond Sound. Made, made by Richmond Sound. It was the yeah, it was a, a great, you know, really great, solid box. I mean, you know, pr, you know, top, you know, top of the line technology for about, you know, 1999, 2000. Sort of a poor man's LCS, uh, if you know about LCS. That's the level control systems. That's that's like super high end. Mm -hmm. ACT has an LCS system. Berkeley Rep has an LCS system. Um, it, you know, they go into huge theme parks and things like things like that with multi zones. Anyway, so you know, you've got this history of of proprietary boxes, which are getting easier and easier to use and smaller and smaller. But it's still this kind of notion of, okay, I'm going to bring in my my thing that we've all, you know, we've worked on in Vancouver and, and uh, you know, and we, we've got this entire uh, world set up, you know. Um, you use our software, our box, and you hook it into your system. You, you run into problems that, like, it takes, you know, it takes a year to learn how to use it. You know, less probably if you used it a lot, but... Anyway, you know, takes a there's a there's a big learning curve. 
you run into this problem where no one else knows what you're doing or how, you know, what you're talking about even half the time when you're trying to work on this stuff. Um, it's just a very, very small world. Whereas, you know, QLab has sort of, sort of made the jump. Well, you know, look, I can go buy, I can go get a really nice, you know, Motu box and a nice off the shelf Mac. And I've got my QLab software, which is, you know, uh, solidly written and bug free and, you know, doesn't do, you know, bug free, mm -hmm. um, you know, doesn't do things you don't expect it to do usually. Um, and that, you know, I think that's a, that was a real turning point for, uh, particularly for smaller theaters, you know, um, to be able to do really high quality sound design. When I moved here in 2000, 2001, you know, um, you know, if I wasn't working at a super nice theater where they had a, you know, something like an audio box or an LCS system, then I, you know, I was still mixing CDs and mini discs, you know, um, which is just, you know, I can't, I just can't even imagine going back to that world now and just, you know, the things, so many things you had to eliminate the possibility of doing before you ever got into the theater, mm -hmm. you know? So I guess I'm just kind of wondering if any of his stuff now is still applicable, if people are still using it. Let's say, you know, you're doing an installation and you just want it to be totally turnkey because when you leave, the office manager is the one in charge of it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they don't even know what an XLR cable is. Um, something like an audio box or an LCS setup I mean, it is, you can program it down to the bit. It'll, it might take you a month, but you can just, you can program it to death and just have it be totally turnkey, you know, and then turn it on, it. everything happens. Mm -hmm. The show that I'm working on now is at this tiny space and they just have these crappy old home CD players. And I was like, you know, am I going to tell them to get a computer or just to get better cheap CD players? And in the end, I told them to get CD players because they can spend $150 and at least get some CD players with bigger buttons so that operators can just have bigger things to push. But if I tell them to get a computer, then all of a sudden it's this responsibility that then I'll probably have to come in and like make sure the operating system is up to date right. and make sure everything's set so that there's not any like little bugs popping up, especially if they want to get a PC and then it's yeah. all these other yeah. problems. So, so yeah. maybe I'm just saying that's then the benefit of, of a system like an audio box or an LCS too is that that probably still has that still has its advantages over you know just using QLab with a computer. I don't know. Well, I mean, talking to me personally, I don't see much of an advantage anymore. In fact, I think you know, particularly something like LCS is just a colossal waste of money. That's just my opinion. I mean, especially you know in the climate we're in right now, where you can't find the money for an extra roll of gaff tape, let, let alone, you know, things you actually need. And I really feel like, you know, particularly if you're just doing sound effects playback, you're getting into, if you're getting to live processing and stuff like that, there's, that's the whole other discussion. But as far as just straight up, you know, um, sound effects playback, you know, I think you can do anything you're doing with LCS uh, with with QLab and a little elbow grease. Yeah. You know? 
Any exciting projects you have coming up? Um, well, I'm working on um, uh, working on reborning at Asset Playhouse, but that, I don't, I'm not sure I have much to say about that right now. I've got a lot of work to do on it yet. Uh, as far as next season goes, though, it's looking like I'm I'm gonna do a show at OSF next year with Rob Melrose directing, Troilus and Cressida. Um, be doing a show at the Guthrie uh, production of Julius Caesar with the acting company, hmm. which should be fun. So it's going to be a year of Shakespeare, um, and doing at least one, maybe two shows at ACT next season. Um, and if people want to follow your work online, is there any place that you're most active? <laughs> uh, I'm between websites right now. But um, I'll just cliffcarruthers.com. You can go there, and hopefully by the time this gets out, there will be something to something to see. Something to click on. Yeah, I mean, I have a MySpace page, but uh, I'll just just leave that out of it. I'm, <laughs> That's I'm just take embarrassing. That. Well, it's just, I, I haven't been I haven't updated it in a long time. I'm thinking about taking it down. So. All right. Sound design live. Oh. Uh-huh.